How shall young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity we have to gather together as a body of believers around the teaching of your word. We thank you for the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has provided for us for the spiritual life of this church age. Now, Father, we pray that as we continue our study in Genesis this evening, that you would help us to understand the significance and implications of the things that we study and that it may give us a greater appreciation for your creation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Genesis 2, verse 15. Genesis 2, verse 15. Last time we looked at these verses in detail, which read, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to guard it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Now this, of course, is a situation with Adam. Adam alone. uh, Isha had not yet been created. Adam is alone in the garden. And we see at this point with the mandate from God to and the prohibition to not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the introduction of human responsibility. Last time we took three things out of this passage that are introduced here. The first is human responsibility. The second is an implication of that, and that is authority and accountability. When you have responsibility, there is always someone to whom you are accountable And there is always someone in authority. So if there is responsibility, there is, point number two, authority and accountability. What we see from this is that man is given a responsibility. He's given a mandate, and if he fails, then there will be consequences. He will die spiritually. That is part of the accountability. And then the third point that we took from this last time was that the mention of these tasks that are given to the man indicate that man is given a basic calling or vocation in life. So undergirding the concept of responsibility here is the idea of labor, that there is labor in the Garden of Eden. Now, this is 
what happens is we tend to view labor from the post-fall framework, and we look at labor in terms of toil. We're going to get into that this evening with the doctrine of labor. But there is responsibility. There were tasks to perform. This is given in terms of the verbs avad, which means to work or to serve, and shamar, which means to guard or to keep. And so Adam is given specific responsibilities in the garden. And this idea of responsibility introduces us to the first divine institution, which is human responsibility. So we will cover the doctrine of the divine institutions, or at least this beginning point, under nine points. First point, the laws of divine establishment are principles ordained by God for the protection, perpetuation, orderly function, survival, and blessing of the human race. In his omniscience, God knew the limitations of mankind. He also knew that man would sin. So he is establishing certain, uh, certain institutions from the very beginning which were designed for the protection, preservation, perpetuation of the human race. These we call the laws of divine establishment, and they are covered under five divine institutions. So these are for everyone. They're not just for Christians. They're not just for believers, but they're for every human being. That's why they're called uh, divine institutions. Second point is that the term divine institution has been used by Christians to speak of these absolute social structures that have been instituted by God for the entire human race, therefore believers and unbelievers alike. So these are divine institutions. The term divine emphasizes the fact that they have their origin in God. This is not something that man developed in order to somehow make things work better, somehow organize society, somehow to organize uh, his relationships. These are... Uh, social structures that have been built into creation and built into the nature of man by God. And that leads to the third point, which, in, which recognizes the conflict, and that is the conflict between divine viewpoint, which says that these are absolute social structures established by God, and human viewpoint, which teaches that these are simply social customs or conventions that have been developed pragmatically through human history, and they're different in every culture. Of course, as we've studied in postmodernism, the various postmodernists would say that the various expressions of these customs are all equally valid. So that in some cases you may have a matriarchal society, in other cases a patriarchal society, in other places uh, you have neither, in some places you have uh, a conventional marriage of a man and a woman living together with their children and other cultures you have uh, the women the, the fathers and the mothers do not live together in the same house and the children are raised actually by an uncle all kinds of different cultures different ways of approaching marriage and the family and postmodernism would say they're all of equal value it doesn't matter whether you have uh, two men two women a man and a woman, a brother and a sister, as long as there's some sort of structure there. 
So human viewpoint sees these as purely relative, purely relative, something that man just developed over time to pragmatically handle the situation. In contrast, we've seen that divine institution, point number two, is that God established these as absolutes for the entire human race. So point number four, these divine institutions represent absolute structures which God has built into the social constitution of man. Because God created man the way he is, the point here is that if these institutions are violated, then something fundamental falls apart. If the human viewpoint position is right, that they're merely social constructs or conventions or cultural uh, ideas developed in, in different situations, then when there are differences, there may be difficulties, there may be some uh, major disturbances in society, but there's no real significant long-term penalty or consequence. But if the Bible is right that these are, these are institutions established by God from the very beginning before there's ever a fall, before there's sin. Notice the first two divine institutions of human responsibility and marriage are established before there's a fall, before the chaos of sin. They're established in perfect environment, which shows that, that these aren't designed simply to handle different uh, situations that result from sin. They are part of perfect environment. So if they're violated, then it's going to bring about long-term serious consequences in human society. So point number four is that these divine institutions represent absolute structures which God built into man's social constitution. Point number five, there are five divine institutions. There are five divine institutions, as we will see, and we'll develop them as they each one comes into existence throughout our study of Genesis. The first is human responsibility, or sometimes I'll just call it individual responsibility. The second is marriage. The third is family. The fourth is human government. And the fifth is individual nations. Each of these are established over the course of human history. The first two, one could even say the first three, are established pre-fall. Because the command was to be fruitful and multiply, that envisions family, even though there are no offspring until after the fall. Human government and nationality, uh, individual nations, doesn't come in until after the flood, after you start seeing the real chaos of sin in human society, and government and nations are designed to uh, as institutions to restrain sin and to control unrighteousness. So point number five just summarizes the five divine institutions, human responsibility, marriage, family, government, and national divisions. 
Now, point number six. Point number six is the first divine institution, which I've called human responsibility or sometimes individual responsibility. This first divine institution I've heard labeled many different things. Sometimes it's called simply volition, emphasizing the individual choice, human choice. Sometimes I've heard it called personal responsibility, responsible dominion, uh, responsible labor, and I choose to call it primarily human responsibility. The issue there for that I'm emphasizing is responsibility. Verses for this are Genesis 1, 26 to 30, and Genesis 2, 15 to 17, and Psalm 8, 3 through 8. The main idea here is that man is placed on the earth and given a responsibility by God so that he is answerable to God. He is to manage the earth under God's authority. Genesis 1:26 through 30 emphasizes the fact that man is to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and that is because he is in the image and the likeness of God. So the emphasis, I choose to emphasize the responsibility element in this institution. Seventh point, responsibility, the very concept of being responsible for something, includes the idea of volition. It necessitates volition. The the person makes a choice as to whether they will be responsible or be irresponsible, whether they will fulfill the obligation or responsibility or not fulfill the obligation or responsibility. So the issue is, will man fulfill the responsibility that God gives him in the garden in perfect environment? So point number seven recognizes that responsibility entails volition. Point number eight, as we look at each divine institution, each divine institution has an authority with it. In human responsibility, the authority is God. Adam is answerable and accountable to God for his actions. And in human responsibility, man is ultimately accountable to God at the judgment seat of Christ for believers and at the great white throne judgment for unbelievers. In marriage, the authority is the husband, and the wife is under his authority, under his leadership, under his headship, 1 Corinthians 11.3, and she is responsible to the husband. It is the man, as we're seeing in this section, it is the man who is given the calling and the responsibility. We're covering all of this, and the woman is not on the scene yet. It is the man, it is Adam, who is the federal head, the representative head of the human race. When Eve sins, nothing really happens, but it's Adam's sin that causes the human race to fall. It is in Adam all die not in Eve. So man is the head. In the family, it is the parents who are the authority. The parents are the ones in authority. They are the ones who are accountable for the welfare of that family. And they are responsible to God for what happens in the family. 
So there's an authority structure in the parent, in the family. Parents are there and children are to be obedient to their parents. That's where they learn authority orientation. And if they don't learn authority orientation in the family, then when they become adults, they are going to have major problems handling any other situation where they have to face authority. Then we come to human government. And whether that government is a monarchy, whether it is a some form of totalitarian government, a dictatorship, an empire, whatever it may be, whether it's a, a democracy or a republic, these are all different forms of government, there is always either a, an individual or a group of individuals who are the final authority. And that is the final authority in human government. And then the individual nations are accountable once again to God. And the nations will be held accountable, and there will be a judgment of the nations at the great white throne judgment. There will be accountability there. So each divine institution has embedded within it an authority structure. And then finally, point number nine is that accountability... When we look at the concept of human responsibility, we have accountability, and accountability has to do with either cursing or blessing. We're back to a major theme that we have in Genesis, and that is cursing and blessing. That if man is responsible, then he will be blessed if he's obedient to God, and if he disobeys God with reference to the mandate of uh, Genesis 2:17, then there will be cursing and there will be spiritual death which will hinder man in fulfilling his responsibilities, as we'll see when we get to uh, Genesis chapter 3. So all of that introduces us to the first divine institution of human responsibility. And when you have human responsibility, when someone understands the nature of responsibility and grows up and matures and demonstrates responsible behavior, then this is going to strengthen the marriage, that strengthens the family, that strengthens human government, and it strengthens the nation. But when you have a nation where they fail to understand responsibility and accountability, it destroys marriage, it destroys family, it destroys government, and it destroys, ultimately will destroy the nation. It sets up a domino effect. So that it is, that's why it is so crucial for parents to teach responsibility and have consistent accountability with their children as they are growing up. And if you'll notice, and as we go through this, we'll see that each of these institutions is under incredible assault today. You have all kinds of attacks on human responsibility from humanistic psychology and Freud. It's not my fault, it's my parents' fault, or it's society's fault, or it's the education system's fault, or or it's my older brother's fault, or somebody mistreated me and it's their fault. It's never my fault that I make bad decisions. It's somebody else's fault. And so psychology comes along with its sister sociology, and they have presented a twofold frontal assault against uh, personal responsibility and accountability in our society. And this is working its way out in the classrooms and schools across the nation, 
nation in all kinds of situations where nobody has discipline anymore or teaches uh, accountability. You You can only go so far in the classroom as a teacher, and then you're in trouble. So marriage is under assault today. One of the reasons marriage is under assault is because we've allowed the world to redefine marriage. The world has redefined marriage as a loving relationship between two people. That's not how the Bible defines marriage. Marriage marriage in the Bible is a relationship between a man and a woman to fulfill certain responsibilities under the authority of God. The Bible never presents marriage in terms of a loving relationship. This idea of, a, of dating and courtship and finding somebody that you fall in love with and finding a soulmate and all of that come, may be nice. I'm not putting it down, but it's not the picture you get in the Scripture. I mean, in the Scripture, you have people who have arranged marriages throughout the Scripture. Mary and Joseph had an arranged marriage. Abraham and Sarah uh, and they had an arranged marriage, and they arranged a marriage for uh, Isaac and Rebecca, and they arranged a marriage for Jacob and and uh, to go marry his find a uh, a wife among his uh, kin back in uh, Ur, and we have the whole episode there with uh, Rachel and Leah. And, but this is not a situation where love and romantic love is the foundation of the institution. That is a human viewpoint concept. And see, once you change the nature of marriage to a loving relationship between two people, then all of a sudden they can be, you know, two men or two women or, you know, a, a man and a boy. You've got all kinds of perversion that's going to slip in there because you're redefining uh, marriage. So the bottom line to all the other dis- all the other divine institutions is human responsibility. But part of that includes fulfilling responsibility. And in the garden, there wasn't just the responsibility of not eating the fruit. That's the only mandate that carried with it a penalty. There was the positive mandate of working the garden and guarding the garden. And so we look at our two verbs in uh, verse 15, they were to tend, avad, actually it's avadah, and that last little a-h indicates a uh, pronominal suffix which refers to Eden. They were to tend it, and they were to keep it, and that refers to the garden. The words that were used there, as I pointed out last time, are also words used in worship and service, and so there's a tremendous uh, uh, connotation here that their work in the garden was part of their worship toward God. So we need to ask the question now, address the issue of labor and how God views labor. This is a very important thing because people in history, Christians in history, have done some thinking about how God views labor. They've done some confused thinking about God and labor and produced some rather odd uh, economic theories as a result of that, uh, one is a <clears throat> most noted was a book that was published in 1904 by a sociologist by the name of Max Weber, German sociologist, wrote a book called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. There's a lot of things we could say about Weber's uh, work. I think there are some basic problems inherent to it. One of the things that he points out is that uh, capitalism has its root in Calvinism, 
And he says that uh, what he does, it's a very interesting thesis. He goes back and looks at the, the Industrial Revo- Revolution. says, you know, there had to be a lot of capital to capitalize the Industrial Revolution. How are you going to pay for all of these inventions? How are you going to pay for all of these developments? And he said there had to be a source of capital. So when he looks around, he says, well, the source of capital was really came out of, out of uh, the influence of Calvinism in Europe and in England, because Calvinists had to, they, they equated financial success with the blessing of God, and because they weren't sure of whether or not they were elect, the only way they could be sure if they were elect was if they had a level of financial success. So they worked hard, they were diligent, they developed a work ethic, and if the, and they saved money. And it was the fact that they saved money, and that's those savings ultimately financed the um, Industrial Revolution. Well, there's a lot of challenges to Weber's thesis, and I don't think it holds water. I think there's a lot of problems with both his understanding of Calvinism and his understanding of, of economics. But he does make one point that is, that, that's worth noting, and that is that religious beliefs have economic consequences. And he, he should be lauded because he points that out. Another, uh, uh, study came out in the late 20th century by Evan Browning, who did a study of Roman Catholic countries and Protestant countries in the 20th century. And he noted that the per capita income of Protestant countries was $12,302 per capita. In Roman Catholic countries, the average per capita income was $1,776. Now note the contrast. In Roman Catholic countries, the per capita income was 12, 000, a little over 12000 a year, and in Roman Catholic countries, the average was about 1700 a year. So you see, religion has an impact. It is one of the factors, and it shows how people view work and labor. So let's try to develop, as we go through the scriptures, uh, a biblical view, or at least some parameters, that help us look at labor. I mean, most of us spend a good bit of our time laboring every day. You get up early in the morning, you go to work, you work all day, and you come home at night, go out and work again in the yard, spend a lot of time laboring. So we ought to have a biblical theology, biblical doctrine of labor, so that we can properly understand why it is that we do what we do and how to have a more biblical attitude towards towards work. Well, the first picture, point number one, the first picture that we see of God in the Scripture is a craftsman, a laborer who is creating. This is the very first picture we see of God in Genesis chapter 1. He's laboring. He's fashioning the universe. He is the arch laborer. He's pictured as a craftsman. Later on, we'll see that Jesus labors, and we talk about the work of Christ on the cross. And we reap the benefits of his work. See, salvation isn't free. Somebody paid the price. Jesus Christ paid the price. He performed the work. He performed the labor on the cross, and we reap those benefits. See, people think they can get something for nothing, but you can't ever get anything for nothing. Somebody always pays the price. Somebody somewhere is uh, paying the price. 
So salvation is free to us, but Jesus Christ performed the work. God labored six days, we see in the, in the scriptures, in Genesis 1, and then he rested for one day. And that sets a pattern that is embedded in creation, a seven-day work week. There have been attempts by various cultures over the course of history to try to change that, and it never works. God has built this cycle into the universe. Second point, we want to just reflect on how man has viewed labor. In human history, man generally divides labor into two categories, toil and leisure. Toil and leisure. As toil, we will look primarily, because over most of human history, this hasn't been mental toil. It has been physical labor, physical toil. Let's keep our terms separate. Physical toil and then leisure work. Now, let's look at the difference. Toil is what you must do to survive. It's what you must do to eat, to provide food, shelter, and clothing. It's work that you must do, whereas leisure work is optional. Leisure work is work that you would do even if you didn't have to work, even if you didn't need to work. Just think about many people, many folks retire, and what they do is they become gardeners or they take up a hobby such as carpentry. They they still do something. They, we have some that just become couch potatoes, but retired workers generally find something to do to occupy their time. This is leisure work. If you were to win the lottery and win 30 or 40 million dollars, what would you do? You wouldn't just sit around and do nothing. You might not do what you're doing now, but you would find something to do. That is the classification of leisure work. You might take up remodeling the house or uh, learning more about investing to take care of your money, whatever it may be. But you're not doing it because you have to. You're doing it because you want to and because it gives you pleasure. Now, since we live in a post-fall environment, even work that we enjoy, even leisure work, becomes toil sometimes because we live in a world that where, where the creation itself seems to fight us. Now, the in, in human history, there has always been a certain prejudice against the laborer, against the what we might call the common laborer, against physical work. In ancient Thebes, there was a predisposition against work, uh, against labor, physical labor. A man could not hold public office in Thebes until he had retired from his business for ten years. So there's obviously a bias against a manual laborer. This was also true in Rome. Livy, who was a Roman historian, denounces uh, Vero uh, in the Roman council, and he said he, he accused the man by saying that he sprang from an origin not merely humble but vile. His father was a butcher who sold his own meat and employed his son in this slavish occupation. So he viewed common physical labor as something very negative. So there was a uh, view that toil was inherently evil. This isn't confined to the ancient world. In the Victorian era, 
where there was a tremendous impact of biblical truth on on uh, England. There were a lot of bad things going on as well. When I say there was a tremendous impact of evangelical truth in England, I do not mean to say that everything they did was right, but that in terms of comparison with other countries, there was more there than elsewhere, probably maybe 20 or 30 percent. I don't think any culture has ever been impacted uh, more than about 20 or 30 percent, and Victorian England was one where there was a tremendous uh, impact of biblical truth. But during the Victorian era, a gentleman was defined as someone who uh, never worked. He lived off his inheritance. So if you were a gentleman, you did not work. You just lived off of what your uh, father, your forefathers had done. A gentlewoman, your ladies will like this, a gentlewoman was a woman who could not put a coal in a fire, brush her hair, answer a doorbell, post a letter, make a pot of tea, darn a sock, lift a duster, or wash a cup. So there is this sort of inherent prejudice against doing anything physical as, some, as if it is somehow uh, tainted. Now notice that it's in the Victorian era with that distorted view of labor that you have a young man named Karl Marx grow up and observe that uh, negative view towards the laborer and that influenced his negative ideas and his development of Marxist thought. So in human viewpoint, labor, physical toil, let's say, has been looked down upon. The blue-collar worker, the craftsman, somehow that has been uh, denigrated. So point number three, let's look at how the Bible portrays physical labor. First of all, we under point number three, God uh, portrays labor as a function of the divine image and creativity. You see, he uses the image of a laborer many, many times to represent himself. He honors and glorifies a laborer. But in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. Why did he do this? See, he starts off with this labor this where he's creating. It's not toil. It's not hard. It's not difficult. He doesn't do it because he has to. He doesn't do it because he's lonely. See, the Islamic God has to create because he's lonely. He's a solitary God. But God, the Christian God, is a Trinitarian God, so he's not lonely. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are co-equal and co-eternal, so they're not lonely. So God doesn't have to create. He does it simply because he he wants to. So from the very beginning, you see this picture of creating, of being a craftsman as something that is viewed positively. Then under point number four, God glorifies the laborer by using the images of a laborer to convey his own plans and work. For example, in Psalm 8.3, the psalmist says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. See, God's creative work is compared to the work of a craftsman who is uh, taking painstaking efforts over his work. It's the work of your fingers. Now, that's an anthropomorphism, which is where we use human features that God does not actually possess in order to uh, communicate something about his plans and purposes. But the picture is of God who is a laborer. He's also portrayed in the Old Testament as a potter, someone who's getting his fingers dirty, someone who is messing with the clay. God is viewed as a shepherd. A shepherd was, in the ancient world, the uh, bottom rung of the 
work ladder. Nothing was lower, nothing was disdained more than the work of a shepherd. So God is viewed as a performing manual labor. He's a husbandman who trims the vine. Uh, when Jesus came to the earth in the incarnation, he didn't become a monk and live off in some monastery somewhere isolated from everyone. He was a carpenter, a manual laborer. So the Bible does not see that the, that manual labor is something that is beneath man, something that is demeaning, but gl- God glorifies the work of the physical laborer by using their work to picture his own work. Now, point number five, in terms of looking at what happens in Genesis 1, we see that God's labor of creation involves thought and planning. For example, in Psalm 33, 6, we're told, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Now, embedded in that concept of the word of the Lord is the idea of thought. The idea of word is speech, communication. That implies thought, reason, all that is involved in that. So God has thought this out. He has a rationale. He has a plan. There's prior thought and planning put into the creation of the heavens and the earth. So when we work, there should be prior thought and planning. The sixth point that we should see in the first chapter is that God worked not because he had to, but as an expression of his own creativity. The application there is that in our own work, we ought to think of it as an opportunity to put our own stamp of creativity on it. This is something that we make. This is something that we should uh, take some ownership in, some responsibility for, that our work, even though it may be drudgery at times, even though it may be uh, toilsome, it is something that uh, we can put our own stamp of creativity on. Remember, we're created in the image and likeness of God, so just as he creates, we're creative as well. That's part of our, the image of God in us. Now, seventh point is that when we look at those six days, not only does God create because he wants to, it's an expression of his nature, but there's a certain pattern there. He set, sets a pattern of creating the universe in six days. He doesn't do it all at once. God could have snapped his finger, so to speak, and everything could have come into existence in a split second. But God took six days to do it. There's planning. There's progress. He doesn't try to do the job all at once. He builds one thing upon another. It involves planning. It involves a pattern. He plans what he does. And then he evaluates it. At the end of each day, he says that he did thus and so, and it was saw that God saw that it was good. He evaluates his work, and he takes satisfaction in it. That's the eighth point. At each stage of the six days, God evaluates his work, and he takes satisfaction in it. He appreciates what he has done, sees that his work is good. And the application here is that we should take satisfaction in our own work. We can stop, evaluate it, see that what we are doing is accomplishing what we want it to do, and that we can take satisfaction in that work. It is something, that, a task, a calling that God has uh, given us, and that we are doing it ultimately as believers for his glory. 
And then the ninth thing that we see here is that God's creative labor tells us something about his character. God's creative labor tells us something about his character. In Psalm 19.1 we read, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. So we learn something about God and his nature and his character by observing what he has uh, brought forth through his labor. The same thing is true for us, that if you, you look at what you do at work, that should say something about your character. Tell If anybody comes along and looks at what you do, that should be a something that indicates who you are, a signature of your real character. And we've looked at God now, the labor of God in Genesis chapter 1. Now let's look at how man is to exercise his labor. Man's labor is derivative because he is the creature. He is the reflection of God. He's in the image of God. So point number one, we recognize that man was created to exercise dominion. That's labor. Man was created to exercise dominion as God's representative and to rule the earth. Genesis 1 26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps over the earth. And God blessed them in verse 28 and said, be fruitful and multiply. Notice there's a, there, embedded in the very beginning, there's a connection between responsible labor and, and productivity. He is to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it. So there is more to it than simply ruling the earth. It involved expansion. It involved uh, developing the human race far beyond just the initial family. So point number two, we see that when the fall occurs, when the fall occurs, it destroyed man's ability to completely fulfill this dominion mandate. Now, man is still involved in that. Every time you look outside and you see the fact that they are taking uh, woodlands and they're developing those woodlands and they're doing various advances, that is all part of exercising dominion. Now, it may be done in wrong ways. It may do harmful things at times and irresponsible things, but it's still an example of man exercising dominion. But man is never going to be able to fulfill the dominion mandate as a sinner. This is why Jesus, part of why Jesus Christ came. He's called the Son of Man. And as the Son of Man, Jesus Christ ultimately will fulfill that dominion mandate. He will rule. So this brings about a very high view of labor. Man is given a, a task of labor at the very beginning. Sin comes in and uh, prevents him from fulfilling it. So God sends his son, and as part of salvation, the, Jesus Christ is going to ultimately rule the creation and fulfill that dominion mandate as the Son of Man. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24, where we read, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. So Jesus Christ fulfills the dominion mandate. 
Now, in Genesis 1, we see the mandate that man is to rule over all of, the, all of nature, that he is to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the uh, creatures of the sea, the sky, and the field. The specifics of that are then spelled out when we get in Genesis 1.15, where man is to tend, I mean Genesis 2.15, where man is to work the garden and to guard it. And then another example of man exercising dominion is given in Genesis 2.19. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. Now, there are a number of things going on in that passage, but the point is that Adam is working. He has to do a lot of mental work. He has to observe all of the different animals. He has to note their characteristics. He has to categorize and classify the animals. This is the starting point of human knowledge is to take what God has provided and then to begin to develop it, to uh, learn about it. We see in that later on in chapter 4 the development of metallurgy. Man has to learn all about the various natural resources that God put in the ground, iron and uh, copper and various other metals. He has to learn about their melting temperatures. He has to learn about plating and tensile strength and all kinds of other things that go with metallurgy. So that even in an unfallen state, man would continue to learn all about the environment to bring it under dominion. Point number five in terms of human labor is our observation from Genesis 1, 26 to 27 that the earth without man is not fruitful. It is man who is to bring forth fruit on the earth. Man is the one who is to make the earth fruitful and productive. He is not to leave it in a natural state. Now that runs completely counter to the human viewpoint thinking of modern environmentalists. That's because they're rooted in paganism and not Christianity, and they want to blame Christianity for all the bad things in the environment. The earth, though, cannot be fruitful, and it's designed to be fruitful. God put all of these things in the earth as potential, but it is up to man to develop them. So Adam demonstrates that through his naming of the animals. Uh, furthermore, we see that through Adam, the human race was to take dominion over the whole earth. Adam alone could not do that. Adam and Eve could not do that. Adam needed, they would have, they would have had children, and those children would have had children, and the idea was to populate the earth and to develop the resources of the planet. So there is a connection between the productivity of the planet and uh, reproduction. And one of the things that we must observe is that these two things go together, developing the resources and the mandate to reproduce. Whenever you have in history high reproduction rates and low dominion activity, you have overpopulation. You go to some places uh, in India, some places in China, you have very high reproduction rates, but nobody's really exercising dominion. And on the other hand, where you have low reproduction rates 
and high dominion rates, you have underpopulation. Let's just think about this a minute. You go to Hong Kong. Hong Kong is one of the most densely populated areas on the planet. And yet you don't have overpopulation there. People aren't starving to death. People aren't. There's not famine. It's because there is a high level of dominion. They're running businesses. There's banking. There's marketing. All of these things are going on, so they're supporting an extremely dense population. However, there are other areas in Africa and Ethiopia and the Sudan where there is very low population density, but there, there's abject poverty because they are not utilizing the natural resources well. And the reason is, is that they're, when it's investigated, is they're usually violating divine establishment principles at some level. Man must labor within the structures that God has established or he will reap the negative consequences. One of the greatest examples of this I learned uh, many years ago, living in Texas and out west and always interested in, in the Indians, is that if you take a study of the Apache Indians and Comanche Indians that lived up in the kind of north Texas and the uh, panhandle of Texas, they, they were nomadic tribes and they roamed all over west Texas. But in fact, those areas were overpopulated by those Indian tribes. They had a very rudimentary technology, and before they got the horse and before they had some uh, you know, steel, if they were going to uh, survive, they would often find a buffalo herd, and then there are a lot of uh, canyons in that area, and they would run the herd off the cliff, and they would kill thousands of tons of buffalo meat. And they would take, you know, they would have a tribe of 75 or 100 people, and they would take the meat they could carry off, and they would dry some of it, and they would leave tons of meat to simply rot. Just a tremendous waste. And they would stay in a village location for a while. They had no sanitation technology. And as soon as they uh, wiped out that area, they would just move on to the next area. I mean, they polluted the planet in, in terrible ways. If they had had a more advanced technology, they would have been much worse than any, any modern industry. They just moved from one area to another. As soon as they trashed it out, they went to the next. And they had a nomadic existence, whereas in comparison to the Navajo, who lived over in the Utah area, New Mexican area, they had developed an, agri an agricultural uh, culture, and they were less nomadic. And so the, the one piece of land that was much drier and much more difficult to live on could support a greater number of people. And if you take a comparison between the number of folks who live in Amarillo or Lubbock, Texas today, and contrast that with the fact that 150 years ago, uh, five or 600 Apaches or Comanches overpopulated the area, and now there are several million people who live in that and are supporting that same ecosystem, you realize that it's a function of dominion. The more people that are there, the more can be supported if there's a higher operation of the Dominion mandate where you are uh, developing technology and industry. And as a result of that, you can support large numbers of population. So the expansion and exercise of the Dominion mandate has a correlation to reproduction Rates And the view of Genesis 1, 26 to 28, envisioned Adam and Eve reproducing prior to the fall. 
to fulfill the dominion mandate. Now, the problem that we have is what happens in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, we have the fall, and that radically changes the nature of labor. Up to this point, labor and responsible labor is positive. It's beneficial. It is something that man enjoys. There is complete harmony between man and his environment. But after the fall, there is disharmony. There is antagonism. There is difficulty. Turn over to Genesis 3, 17. Before the fall, man is to work the ground. But after the fall, God tells Adam, Cursed in the second half of 17, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it. See, before there was labor, but now that labor becomes toil. In toil you shall eat of it. There's going to be struggle now where there wasn't struggle before. You've experienced that each day. You get up and you go to work, and some days things are okay, but more often than not, something goes wrong, and there's struggle, there's opposition, there's things that you have to to uh, deal with that you didn't want to deal with. At the end of a week, you feel like you're at the end of three weeks before that, and you really haven't made any progress. Uh, Verse 18, but both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So there's a change in vegetation. There was just positive vegetation before. Now there's negative vegetation. So the, the, it's almost as if a man is trying to exercise his authority over the planet and the planet is rebelling against man in the same way that man rebelled against God. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Now, it's interesting, you may not realize this, but scientists have isolated six different kinds of sweat. See, most of you just thought there was one kind of sweat, and you got hot, and you sweated or perspired. But there are at least six different kinds of sweat and different kinds of sweat glands. And I'm only going to deal with three of them this evening. There is the kind of sweat most of us think about, and that is thermoregulatory sweat. And that is perspiration designed to cool cool the skin and to keep the body temperature at a healthy body temperature. And there are thermoregulatory sweat glands in various places on the body, but not in the armpits, for example. Uh, there's also uh, emotional sweat, and that's a different kind of sweat gland, and that's what you have in your, on your armpit. So when you're sweating and you have those big stains under your arms, that's emotional sweat. And then there's mental sweat. And when you're under mental stress, that produces activity in a different sweat gland, and those are on the, on the soles of your feet and the palms of your hand. And it's interesting that there's only one place on the human body that has all of the sweat glands, and that is your forehead. That is your forehead. And see, in the Hebrew, it doesn't say in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, but in the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread. It has to do with mental toil, physical toil, heat, discomfort, All of that produces sweat on your face. So this is just one of those tiny little things you run into in Scripture every now and then, which just shows that there's a lot more going on in the text and in the wisdom of God than most of us recognize. 
Now labor as such is not renovated until Jesus Christ comes back. But in the church age, believers are given a certain amount of uh, injunction as to their view of labor and work. And in closing, I want to go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. There's a number of passages we could go to, and we'll come back and hit the doctrine of labor again. But to wrap up, I just want to look at Colossians 3, our view of labor. Even though it's toilsome, even though it's difficult, even though we may be working for an employer that is not uh, very good to us, an employer that is abusive even, think about this. In verse uh, 22, Paul addresses slaves. Now, you're not a slave. So this is an a fortiori argument. If slaves were to have this attitude, then you should have this attitude. Slaves, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service, that is, not just going through the motions, making it look like you're doing the job, making it look like you're doing what they want you to do, not just a superficial obedience as men-pleasers, but in the sincerity of your heart, a full, total devotion in your own soul to doing the absolute best you can to make your employer as successful as possible. The issue is not you. The issue is doing the best for them. Verse 23, and whatever you do, remember this is talking to slaves. Whatever you do, no matter how menial, no matter how disgusting, no matter how uh, toilsome it may be, whatever you do, do it heartily. Do it with all of your heart. Do it with a passion as to the Lord and not to men. You're serving the Lord, whether you realize it or not. You're not in that job working for that individual that's over you or the individual over them. You're there to work for the Lord Jesus Christ. That is part of your testimony in the angelic conflict. So this gives labor a very high view in Scripture. And then verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Your reward is not your paycheck. Your reward is not even a job well done. Your reward is going to be part of what you get at the uh, judgment seat of Christ. So that brings us to the end of this initial study on labor and divine institution number one. And next time we'll come back and see the introduction for divine institution number two, marriage, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. We pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied. Help us to think more uh, precisely and profoundly about our work and our labor, that we do it all for your honor and glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.